You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Four, three, two, and one ladies and gentlemen we are on episode number 14 of the art of move podcast which is wild to me we're blasting through episodes um today is a really cool episode that i've been wanting to do for a little while will and i have had some discussions uh, by the way my name is anthony manuel we're here with dr william ray Barr. we're in the canadian rockies trying to give you the grand unified theory of how the human body is meant to move i'm pretty stoked for today we're going to be talking about the limitations of science and research within the context of movement and kinesiology and biomechanics specifically however there is some relevancy in terms of uh like a certain way of thinking where you blindly trust what scientists say as interpreted by media right and that's that's sort of a a, almost a default state that most people do especially if the mindset you know we should the scientific institutions are set up to rigorously test different things but if you don't take into account different limitations of scientific thinking specifically the academic structures, which sort of make up academic and scientific thinking, then you can end up with, uh, you know, half truths. And we don't want to end up with half truths. We want to end up with the whole truth. That's what this whole podcast is about. We're trying to figure out the truth behind human movement and biomechanics. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the usefulness of anecdote, the limitations of research models. We're going, to, uh, we're going to also talk about why a lot of the concepts that we've discussed in this podcast so far haven't necessarily been observed or studied in an academic or research-based context because a lot of the the ideas were founded through observation we're going to talk about the importance of observation and how to test observation and uh and you know what sort of is valid when testing ideas and we're gonna you know a lot of what we're talking about you know i think this episode kind of came off the heel ends of <laughs> a digital debate that we ended up having or an ongoing digital debate that is happening between uh, movement practices like go to movement or functional patterns and different physiotherapists and physical practitioners who are more uh, sort of aligned with an academic mindset versus, uh, you know, a make observation and test it yourself mindset. It's basically if it's not written in a peer reviewed double blind study then you can't actually call it a valid or a, a good idea, even if it produces results. So we're gonna talk about the, you know, the, the science versus results phenomenon that is sort of happening in, in movement culture and in training culture in general. There, there, I do believe there is like, a, you know, because you have a paper, it's gonna be more valid than, you know, the, the hundreds of people who are getting results from a certain theory. Um, I think we should talk about that. We should talk about why we talk about a new map and an old map and how the old map was founded in academic roots and kind of why we're talking about a new map from more of a perspective of looking at, um, you know, making evolutionary observations, looking at actual physical movement, not just, um, you know, dead bodies and cutting them open and, and trying to reverse engineer how movement is supposed to happen based on looking at structures or actually looking at actual movement as a, as a way to test and, uh, and observe these different things. So that's sort of the direction that we're going. Um, and Will, I know that you have kind of come from an academic background. You spent years becoming a doctor, a chiropractic doctor, 
and you know like basically all the the reason that you can speak so clearly to the quote old model of academic thinking is because I mean you spent years and years studying it you went through all the research you tried to stay on top of all the research throughout your chiropractic practice as well and like you're pretty well well inundated with uh, academic knowledge and so just off the top of your head where, what what limitations do you see in at, like that taking a purely academic approach to trying to find truth in general we could we could keep it to a movement context but i think there is a limitation in in the the, the truth in general what are some like sort of fallacies you see people falling for well uh to be clear and honest i don't look at papers that much anymore hardly ever i i subscribe to research review service which is somebody who professionally looks at papers uh dr sean thistle and he looks at basically movement journals journals applicable to chiropractic, physio, um, sports therapy, stuff like that, right? And he amalgamates them. He claims to look at around 100 journals a month and then compile the best information and bring it to you and you pay him, right? So great service, by the way, highly recommended if you're not already doing that, okay? If you want to look at the academic world and uh, have a shortcut. However, I'm going to bring it back a little bit to how I kind of learned how to learn, okay? So you know, when you're coming up in high school, basically, I was listening to bro science. I was going to the gym. Um, older guys would tell me what to do. And if they were jacked, then I would say, hey, that's probably what I'm going to do now, right? I'd look at sex <laughs> magazines. I'd look at men's health, get routines from that, and go really hard at the gym, right? You get into university, or I got into university, and I'm starting to learn the academic end of it. And it was really bodybuilding focused, what I was learning in kinesiology, okay? There was a little bit of biomechanics. Um, however, that biomechanics was really mathematical. It wasn't very practical. There was some mm. practical application, but very mathematical, right? And uh, basically, when you're going through university in general, not just kinesiology or health sciences, it's rare. I never actually have seen a student ask a question about a theory like questioning a, a base theory. If a professor says it, you just write it down and move on. It's not like the social sciences where people debate theories and think about how to, you know, think about the current model in different ways. It's more like pontification of model and then you just regurgitating it, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what happened throughout university. Um, I took that information in, some of it good, most of it not so great most of it leading me on the incorrect path towards uh, viewing everything within the muscle-centric model, okay? So anyway, I get out of university, now I'm in Cairo school, and the Cairo school I went to in Toronto is actually very research-based, okay? It's a, it's a pride thing when you're there. You're, good, you're better as a chiropractor if you're research-based. And this goes, I think, with physios and most uh, of the medical side, you want to be on top of the latest research, okay? And especially in the chiropractic field where, um, you know, there was a little bit of uh, quackery in the past, I guess you can say, and there's yeah. almost like an overcompensation where it's like, no, 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 I'm not one of those. I have the latest research, the best stuff, the science, right? So there's a little bit of that. Most chiropractors are fantastic, by the way. I'm not talking that, but uh, that was a little bit of an insight, right? So basically, there was no looking outside the science for the truth in my mind the scientific consensus the best science was the truth and and you look at how they get it and it's basically like um it's journals 
Okay, the top journals have the best reputation. The scientists are basically battling to get into these journals, to get their work into the most prestigious journals so they get the biggest grants the next year, or you know, the most prestige among their colleagues. And to get in these journals is quite a process. You have to go through peer review, meaning that a lot of smart people are looking at your work and they're seeing if it's good or not. Okay, so that's the positive side of it, but the negative side is, if there is something paradigm changing, if there is some new information that we must look at, it's very hard to get it in there. Mm. There's no paradigm, like you can't shift paradigms all the time. Meaning that a paradigm really is a collection of thoughts, right? And most people are thinking along the same lines. You bring in something like Goto where they're actually using different language and claiming a different map, then you're throwing the whole thing off off kilter, right? So I can see from the science end of it that it's gonna be a major issue, right? Um, however, if there is something paradigm changing, I don't want to miss it. So I'm going to kind of play both sides of the field there, right? I can still have my uh, research-based mind and still go outside the paradigm and see if there's something there and I think there is, okay? That's kind of how I look at things. Um, yeah, did you have any questions on that? Well. I, I like this idea of kind of thinking of a field of study as a paradigm where, where you have this sort of almost academic consensus of even if you're experimenting, trying to find things out, you're still trying to find them out within the context of the paradigm. Right. And, and, you know, some of the things that that, that in itself is a limitation that I want to point out where if you're only thinking within a, an existing paradigm and you're only thinking in terms of the context of the academic studies, that you sort of have built your whole foundation of understanding on, then the ideas or the things that you will eventually go out and test are, are going to be less creative or less outside of that paradigm. Now, obviously there is, you, you won't be able to like go and try to break a paradigm with something that is completely and totally nonsensical, but if you're locked into this particular way of thinking, it can be like horse blinders. You won't be able to make observations that don't necessarily agree with your, your current model of understanding. And I think that's really kind of, you know, the biggest limitation that I see with with academic thought is that it exists within this uh, pre-existing mental model. And I remember my brother, uh, my brother's insanely intelligent and way more scientifically literate than I am. He's a he's a computer scientist, studied virology, a biochemistry, like he has a mind for that. And I don't necessarily, right? I actually will ask him for help sometimes in interpreting science understand but I remember he said you know when I when I started I thought that I was going to school to learn that we that I basically thought that scientists already figured everything out and that I was just going to learn it you know I didn't realize that we don't know anything you know that was the one thing that he kind of learned when going into an academic setting specifically in biochemistry and virology he's like I thought we knew everything but we don't you know and that was the biggest shock for me is is that but most people don't grow out of that phase where people think that, oh no, we actually do know everything. Now we're just finding iterations of, you know, we're discovering iterations and truisms within this this sort of map, this paradigm, this framework that we've already sort of, um, you know, established for ourselves. So that's, I, I like that idea of recognizing that current paradigms of understanding are useful and they're great frameworks to operate from. But if you insist that it's it's right, you know, it's I think it's this insistence on that something is right uh, automatically closes you off to new information and will close you off to uh, 
uh, even seeing what's in front of you. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Like, um, it brings into the question of what is science, right? Is science the consensus of scientists? Is it? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know that it is. I think it's, you know, on, on the level of um, having to move society forward, there has to be some consensus there, society and uh, scientific rigor itself, right? There has to be some consensus. But within individual ideas, does there have to be a consensus? You know what I mean? I like, think, can uh, I well, do my well, own science and without a academically trained scientist looking over me? Absolutely, I can. That's what my martial arts practice is. It's basically science applied testing over and over and over and over again. I may not see every variable, but that is more along the lines of what I want in movement versus scientific rigor. You know, there, there's, I, I want to kind of make a distinction here between the idea of science and the scientific method, because science in and of itself is, it's supposed to be a method to test things, essentially. The, the, there's the scientific method, you start with a question, you form a hypothesis based on what your question is, you make a prediction, you do an experiment, you, you analyze the experiment. After that, you replicate your experiment as in can it be repeated to produce the same result? There's an external review. So you have other people who can maybe see variables that you weren't able to see yourself because as human beings, we know we're fallible. We know we have a limited view of things. Um, and then we record the data and we share it. And then, you know, it's it's sort of submitted to this community of other people who are who are dedicating their lives to doing this, this um, sort of rigorous testing. But I think, um, again, this, I think where we kind of start to, lose some of the integrity is the is the communication and community element where everyone is operating in the same mindset under the same principles and if you don't you know if someone doesn't agree with you necessarily and it, like you could like you said everyone's sort of fighting for this prestigious journal because it's prestigious basically and then everyone's kind of forming their their opinions based on on prestige and it, it becomes more of a like a, a like almost like a like a weird social hierarchy of information as opposed to actual objective rigorous testing, like the the actual ability to find objective information or to or to like test objectively and get objective criticism and get um you know like I think the scientific method is useful and I and I don't want anyone who's listening to think that we're saying science is wrong you know we're just saying that there are flaws in science as an institution not as a method. The method itself is extremely reliable and we've, we've proven it to be extremely reliable throughout the you know thousands of years that we've used it and have developed society with it functionally. Um, but there are limitations in, in human interactions and in human perceptions and in human social hierarchies and human egos sort of dilute the objectivity of how the scientific method should be formed. You know, like the, the one example I always like to bring up is this, uh, you know, I, I was very, very into studying nutrition for a long time. In fact, I could, you know, pull up as much research as I needed to prove that veganism was the best diet for your heart health. Uh, and, and a lot of that, that data that I sort of pulled up was based on Ansel Keys, which was one scientist who, who formed the diet heart hypothesis. And he formed this hypothesis based on data that he actually 
like incomplete data that he specifically altered himself. Like he went and he looked at all these different uh, different countries and their cholesterol rates, and then he left out the country's data that didn't kind of agree with his own hypothesis, and he left it out. So he had the diet heart hypothesis, as in like dietary cholesterol and saturated fat were the, were directly correlated with levels, uh, you know, of, of heart disease functionally, right? So if you're elevated cholesterol from eating a lot of saturated fat, you would have heart disease. That was his hypothesis. That's still the pertaining hypothesis because, again, he created a paradigm of thinking with that. But if you look at Ansel Key's actual research, he left out the data of the countries that did not agree with his hypothesis. He, he was His ego could not take it, so he left it out, and then he formed this whole basically like because he was egotistical and he wanted to be right he formed a whole paradigm of thinking around nutrition that has been proven to be wrong and then like it's funny because the the pervading advice has been decrease the amount of red meat that you eat decrease the amount of saturated fat that you consume because it elevates your cholesterol levels makes it gives you heart disease well if you look at rates of heart disease in correlation to the 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 increase in polyunsaturated fatty acids like the vegetable oils that we replace uh, saturated fat with our, our heart rate, heart disease rates have gone up. And it's like, okay, well, why did that happen? You also have now counter information, like there was just the first clinical trial of a carnivore diet that was just uh, released recently. And the, the results from that were ridiculous. It was like 90 something percent of these over 2000 participants following a carnivore diet for over six months. Uh, like they had to stop taking insulin if they were diabetic. Uh, like 96% of disease were completely resolved entirely. These things that were like chronic diseases or autoimmune diseases or whatever diseases, they resolved because they were eating nothing but meat and saturated fat. And it was like, okay, so clearly the diet heart hypothesis was wrong. And if you look at why it was wrong, it's because Ansel Keys, one scientist, one person created this whole movement, this whole thought movement, this whole paradigm of one particular map of nutrition that's dangerous because now you're doing scientific research based on a flawed premise and you will you will bias everything that you can to trying to prove that real science doesn't do that obviously but there is the issue is if you if you isolate enough variables you can create a picture that serves the the this sort of view of one particular paradigm of thought yeah. And we see that in movement right now. We've talked about that. We've talked about not bracing the core. We've talked about how the foot works in different ways. And we've talked about all these ways that we kind of fundamentally disagree with academic models. Um, and, you know, what are you, like these are some, like, what are some of the models that just off the top of your head that you kind of disagree with in terms of mainstream biomechanics or kinesiology? Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. I, I want to back up a second and then kind of like take a look at, and kind of separate out what we're talking about here. There's the level of the public, right? With how the public views science. There's the science itself from the view of the scientist or the person, you know, doing the system or testing the variables. And that, that begs the question within the science itself, how do we test the variables? Like how did the scientist devise the actual uh, design of the study to test the variables? You can't, if you don't have the right paradigm, you couldn't possibly test the right variables. That's where we're at right now, okay? How do you prove the hypothesis? There's been many different philosophies on how to prove a hypothesis because some people say disprove the hypothesis, right? So 
there's never been a real consensus in history of how to do this. Should we prove it? Should we work to prove it? Or should we work to disprove it? Right? It's all opinion. It's all subjective. Um, and how do we test first principles? How do you know, like your example with, uh, who was it again? The um, Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys. How do we know that first principles are correct? How do you know you're working off the correct first principle if you never question it to begin with? Now, a lot of the, I, I see this a lot. A first principle like, you know, brace the core has a lot of implications down the line. Uh, take anti-rotation training, okay? Anti-rotation training wouldn't be there if it wasn't brace the core and if it wasn't uh, a model underlying that, that the spine is a passive column. That first principle right there is, needs to be tossed, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think the spinal engine where the spine is freely moving is more of a natural way to move. And a, and the thing is, most people have not even heard of it. So how are you supposed to mm. test that variable when you're working from another model? Okay, so these are the higher level questions of what actually happens. Um, yeah. You know, that, that's like, you know, one of the things that you sent me today, a post by The Flexible uh, on Instagram, uh, you're all over here worried about the science of what flexing and extending dead pig spines thousands of times repetitively does to our spinal integrity, which I think is like it's re referencing a, a study that Stuart McGill did on a, a pig spine where he flexed and extended it over and over. And it kind of showed what, you know, like thousands and thousands of times to kind of show what it did to the structure, the actual structure of the spine. And his follow up is I'm over here wondering about the science of why our spine evolved over millions of years into an entire network of mobile joints if they were never meant to move in the first place. And again, he's criticizing this idea that the spine is a passive column. Yes, our spine is a column that keeps our torso upright. Absolutely. It, 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 you can't argue that necessarily. But if you look at the actual structure and its, like its ability to move and how it, how it can move and how it does move, then the idea that it's supposed to be just this stiff rod is like, if, if that's what it was supposed to be, wouldn't you think that it would evolve to be a stiff fused rod? Like when people get a spinal fusion, that's a bad thing. Like typically if they, if they have spinal fusion in, in, in their, in their vertebrae, like that's an uncomfortable, painful thing that like makes their movement less efficient. So this is the idea where you, you're, you're working on a certain model and this model has, like you said, how, okay, so, so that, that is a good question. How do you test first principles? Because okay, um, again, right I, now, go ahead. Well, you have to figure out what the first principle is in the first place, because most people don't even know what, why they're testing the things they're doing or why they're asking the questions that they're asking. Okay. So um, I have actually a personal story with the, uh, with what you just mentioned from flexible there. Uh, back in Cairo school, this was about 2009, I'm going to say, there was a huge debate between Stu McGill and all the respect to him. The guy's genius, right? Obviously. Um, but he's bringing things from a lifting context. I think this is the mistake he's making, bringing lifting context into everything. Either way, there was a debate between Stu McGill and Queensland and their studies, okay? And the debate was... Queensland, uh, whoever that was, um, said that the core, you have to activate the transverse abdominus in order to start the core activation. So that's more like the brace your, or sorry, the 
to brace your core by bringing your belly button into towards your spine. And then McGill said, no, no, no. The best way is to inflate out like a power lifter, right? And that's how you brace the core, okay? And both models are working off a stiff brace the core model. So you have two arguments and everyone's arguing over which one is correct when, you know, I should have been sitting back in the first place going, should we even be bracing our core in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, where is this showing up in any sport ever other than in the gym when you're lifting weights? Or, you know, when you have to hold something really tense, like a gymnastics hold, you might do it there. But in a real life sport, rarely do you ever do that. If I can't think of one example, right? So basically what I'm saying is we were operating off the wrong paradigm, or in my opinion, because this is still the consensus, um, we were arguing over the wrong things. The right thing was behind there, but I had to get the first principle correct first. Should we be bracing the core in the first place? Then I would have had to bring the uh, philosophy back again and say, where did I get that brace the core? Where is that from? Where's the actual study there? Then I'd have to take the study and look at the variables. Or uh, I can take another model like Serge Gregakevsky's final engine and say, oh, this makes more sense according to what I'm seeing, right? Uh, However, in order for it to be a consensus, everybody has to do it at once. And that's the problem with science. Science is in the consensus because if something's obviously wrong, it takes a long time to back it up. So, I mean, there is an advantage to being a sniper. Understand the science, but deviate when you have to. So, so what you just said too, it's it's really interesting. What I heard, I hear another flaw in the in the thinking, right? And that's taking a principle that applies to one thing and then applying it to all things. In the brace the core example, you want to brace your core when you're lifting heavy. In my in my opinion, what like where did the brace the core model come from? Probably from lifting heavy weights and people having fucking spinal injuries after they're lifting, doing heavy deadlifts, and realizing, oh, if I brace my core, I'm not going to hurt my spine. Because, you know, now my core is protecting my spine from these loads that my spine was not designed to withstand, right? So you build up these, you build up this musculature. Now, the issue is like, yeah, okay, you brace your core to protect your spine, bracing, uh, you know, whether, you know, it's, whether it's hollowing or actually bracing, like you said, that debate between the two people, if you create tension through your core, that increases irradiation and power output and different things. Uh, But again, like that's, that, that context is only the context of lifting. If you're talking about locomotive biomechanics, if you're talking about like just moving around, it, the the you know we 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 did a review of one of uh, Stu McGill's videos. I think the interview that he did on the podcast with um, Squat University on the Squat University podcast, he talked about how these belly dancers had excellent spinal mobility, but they couldn't do a sit up. And then he he kind of claimed a reverse relationship between core strength and spinal mobility so the more you're bracing your core the less mobile your spine is well okay that's that's good you don't want your spine to be super mobile when you're lifting a super heavy weight but you want your spine to be mobile for literally everything else like literally every other sort of human movement is like so if you're taking lifting biomechanics and saying these are biomechanics period that's where you're sort of looking at the 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 issues right like Lifting does not make you a better mover necessarily. It can certainly, you know, 
applied lifting movements and strengthening in certain ways can certainly reverse um, you know, some biomechanical damage that you do from sitting and being sedentary. And we, you know, you, you see that all the time. And again, I, I still think like lifting and movement is better than, you know, no lifting and no movement in a lot of cases. Um, but I think that's, that's, again, that's, a, that's a sort of flaw in thinking where it's like, even in the, you know, the saturated fat thing, right. Where it's like, you know, saturated fat specifically, well, maybe it's saturated fat interacting with other, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know, processed grains or something Your our level of inflammation with, with the saturated fat is interacting in a certain way. Obviously cholesterol, dietary cholesterol and isolation obviously has a different effect. You, you look at fructose studies that talk about how fructose damages the liver, but the fructose is in an isolated form. So if you look at fructose damaging the liver from high fructose corn syrup, like, yes, it does. But if you look at fructose damaging the liver from fruit, you'll never find any evidence of that because fructose doesn't interact the same way in whole food form as it interacts when you're, when you isolate it in, in a, in a thing. So it's this idea that you can, you can, isolate variables or you can find things that are true in different contexts and then apply them to all contexts. And that is another sort of fallacy in, you know, quote, trusting the science. You look at science in a certain way and you say, well, I have this paper and this paper and this paper, therefore it applies to everything. It's not nuanced enough thinking. Like you're, you're going to end up with, uh, with some major issues because your, your thinking isn't nuanced enough. I, I completely agree with that. Like, um, I think we should play, I'm going to play a clip and let's mm. talk about it because it's from a book. Um, what is the book called again? Why Trust Science by Naomi or Oretkis. I may be saying that incorrectly, but um, it, it's a very good book and it's about the limitations of science, the history of science, how it came to be, the philosophies behind it and where it is currently, right? So mm. I uh, took out some interesting clips. Why don't I just play it and we can uh, chat about it afterwards. Yeah, that works. And guys, we're recording this on nofilter.net. If you are listening on Spotify or iTunes, go to nofilter.net and you can see all of our upcoming shows. And you can see us sharing our screen and sharing some of these videos, as well as talk to us in the chat or knock to join the stream yourself and join in the conversation. All right, here we go. It might be a little fast. I listen on 2x, but uh, bear with me. Actually, this one's okay. There's a logical asymmetry between verification and falsification. Verifications are always necessarily provisional, whereas falsifications, Popperhild, can be dispositive. This, as a scientist, I should not be seeking observations that confirm my theory, but observations that might refute it. The method of science, Popper therefore concludes, is neither generalization from observation nor verification by observation, but falsification. Put another way, the key activity of science is not the gathering of observations, but the formulation of conjectures and the pursuit of specific observations that may refute them. Thus, the title of his famous collection of essays and lectures, Conjectures and Refutations. Hmm. That is so, interesting. So that, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so what I, and correct me if I'm understanding this wrong, but what I'm hearing is that the, the, the value in the scientific method is actually refuting things that you observe that you assume to be true. Well, um, I, I mean, this is just one guy's opinion. It's a philosopher, a very famous one, Karl Popper, right? So people put his ideas above most, but it's just one person's opinion. And he's saying that it's smarter to try to falsify the hypothesis versus trying to verify it. 
Okay, so if there's something called the black swan that if I see only white swans my whole life and I say I, there's only white swans, but then I see one black swan, it falsifies that statement. It's no longer completely true. Okay, so it, it's smart in this person's mind to try to find falsifications of um, the hypothesis. So this is kind of where Gota comes in. It's pretty it's pretty ironic here because um, basically they're asking people to falsify their claim, but they want people to do it in slow motion. Show me, they, they literally ask all the time, show me a slow-mo uh, video in you know proper context that shows an inside ankle bone low uh, Achilles tear or knee shred with the non-contact, of course, right? And uh, I, I've yet to see somebody come through and chat and uh, do that for them okay and that would be an example of what Karl Popper said it's very easy for you to show a black swan right there if you just show that one video you could really uh make go to not look so great right so yeah. I mean that would be an and example of how to do it you know and that was uh it was funny because on one of our online debates uh against you know, one of the one of the criticisms is like, you know, look at Goda. They're just all they're do, they're not looking at scientific studies. They're just looking at tape, right? There's no scientific basis for it. Like, yeah, but if you take 600 hours of tape, right, and you look at thousands upon thousands of slow motion analyses of of all the same people getting injured, you know, behaving in the same way, and all the people who are not getting injured behaving in another way, that should be statistically significant enough to at least form a question right at least at least be like okay why <laughs> you know that's like yes you need to test it if, if you're if you're going through the scientific method right you're still forming a hypothesis and you still need to test it and you still need to you know do do some stuff and and you know it's funny because there there are uh some sports med doctors who are looking into starting to test some of the goda stuff specifically to avoid the you know, the ACL tears and the Achilles tendon ruptures, the behaviors that Goda has observed seems to be the least conducive to that. Did they rigorously test it with the scientific method? No, but have they made robust observation? Now, this is this is where the what you just said, the black swan of Goda would be really, really useful because you would need something significant. Like you said, it's like find find a video of someone who has who has all the patterns that we discuss. Who are getting the same injuries we haven't found one yet right and that was the criticism it's like well okay i could find 100 videos of uh of a person who's who's getting injured in in these ways that don't agree with you and then i could just say go to wrong it's like okay we'll find them then right that's 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 the go to argument right like go to is just basically saying it's like look we've looked at all the tape this is what's consistent this is what's actually happening the issue is that's not a scientific like that's not the scientific method, right? That's the just the observation phase and the question phase and the hypothesis and the prediction. Now, you could say that GOAT is an ongoing experiment. It started in 2012, you know, and, and they've been working with clients and they've been reversing damage and they've been getting people out of pain and they're creating results, right? This is, uh, you know, one of the things that Naudi Aguilar talks about. He he had a great podcast, actually, on, and I'm not huge on Naudi Aguilar's podcast a lot. He's He's very politicized in a lot of his views um, and there's a lot that I don't agree with him on, but he has a really good podcast on veganism and he talks about how he himself 
uh, you know, can't necessarily trust a lot of studies. And, and he, he looks to test variables himself, right? So he'll, he'll make observations and he'll still research things and he still works within a, a certain paradigm, but he will go out and he'll test. He's a doer, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not that smart. I'm not great at debating these ideas, but I'll go out and do things and I'll go out and observe. And then the, you know, the big critics of Naudi Aguilar and, and functional patterns, his big counter argument is like, look at the results I'm getting on my page. Look at the, the, the issues that I'm resolving. If you're going to tell me that I'm wrong, then you have to tell me that the results are wrong too. So th these are anecdotes, right? But again, you're you're developing a, a like almost like a repertoire of consistent patterns, right? So so now the Aguilar's consistent pattern is he gets some of scoliosis or some movement dysfunction. He gets a person who's in pain all the time or sciatica. He reverses that issue and he improves the biomechanics of these people pretty reliably. Now, the issue is you're not seeing all the clients that he has or all the people who do functional patterns that don't get results, right? You have the, the sort of, uh, have you ever heard of the survivorship bias? No, what is it? So the survivorship bias, I'm gonna actually look up a, a proper definition of it and I could try to explain it myself, but it's a, it's a statistical artifact in applications outside of finance where studies on the remaining population are fallaciously compared the historic average, despite the survivors having unusual properties. So basically it'd be like, you would look at all the results, but you're not seeing all the people that didn't get. You're looking at the person who succeeded on the diet, but you're not looking at all the people who got really sick or had to fail the diet or like passed out because they were under eating. You're looking at the genetic anomalies who are getting results. You could even say yeah, Joel Seedman, for example. Joel Seedman, we, we, we need to do a whole episode on him, but he's like, He's he's like laughed at a lot in the in the fitness industry because of his absolutely ridiculous looking exercises, but he works with a bunch of professional athletes, so he gets a lot of uh, you know a lot of clout. And you're looking at all these professional athletes who could very easily produce a lot of results, and then because you're not seeing what a lay person would do with the same exercises or you're not seeing how how you know your average person if he had like a large group that are doing his training methods like would they all do as well as those professional athletes that he's showing on his instagram page i'd say probably not you know like realistically uh, these 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 people are they're, they're hard workers they're genetically gifted they have a good kinesthetic understanding. They represent like the top tier of the types of people who would, who would do this type of training and they could get results doing literally anything. So they have this quote survivorship bias. How many people would injure themselves doing some of the like ridiculous balancing movements that he has people doing, like doing a row with a barbell with a plate on your back and, you know, holding one foot up and like all this crazy shit. That's just pure chaos. When you look at it, the people that he's showcasing are the survivors, <laughs> not the, well, not the norm. It, it's ironic because he's a PhD, right? So he's very scientific. He's actually using uh, science. However, you can cherry pick science like here. Okay. Um, when you're claiming you're scientific, this is different than when you're not claiming you're scientific. Like, I don't think nobody literally says I'm not using scientific papers. And then scientists come at him like, you're not being scientific. He's like, yeah, I know I'm not. They're like, I told you I wasn't. So I'm taking the same stance. Sometimes I'll use it. Sometimes I won't. It's just another tool in my arsenal, basically. And that's, that's it. Okay. I don't hold it in the highest regard. 
I hold uh, observation and um, what I do with my own body in a higher regard in my own mind. Okay, so um, we can we can go further with that. But basically, Joel Seidman is actually scientific. He's using scientific rigor. He's using scientific papers. Okay, um, he's using uh, like the collective information from the scientific community to justify his movements. So he's more scientific than Gota is in well, in terms of the papers. Now he's he's I would say he's academic and research based, but I wouldn't say he's scientific because to say no, that but, someone is scientific, right? And th and this is this is the collective that's misunderstanding. The language. Exactly, language. the language. So Naudi Aguilar would say that he's a scientist. He wouldn't say that he's scientific. He would yeah. say that he's a scientist because he's testing variables looking at the variables within the body. He's looking at the, he's trying to understand the first principles. I mean, again, like I think for him, first principles ends up being like an anatomy trains thing. He's looking at the, the fascial lines along the body and trying to optimize for that in his, in his training methods. Um, and then he tests variables. He looks at how people like function or don't function rather. And then he'll test the variables on how to fix it. That's ultimately, that's, that's scientific. You know, that's because you're testing things, you're, make, you're, you're making observations, you're forming hypotheses, you're looking at variables and you're testing variables. And that is how he comes to the conclusions that he's coming to. Well, again, the word scientific, he would say, um, academia does not own the word scientific or scientist. You can test variables and then you're doing scientific work. Okay, but it is the, uh, I mean, mindset, I think, of the academic world that the consensus of the scientific community within academia is the consensus, is the truth. Okay, so when someone comes out with a claim and says they don't need the science to say it's true, uh, then it's a problem, right? But it's only a problem for one camp. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's a problem in trust of the public. Like, how does the public, from that end, how do they know who's saying things correctly, right? Who's, who's giving the best information? The public largely trusts academic sources as the consensus of truth within movement, okay? That's who gets in the newspapers. That's who gets in the magazines. That's who gets the research funding. That's who gets the government grants. It's within academia. Therefore, they get all the, uh, basically all the, um, loudspeakers. Okay, so now we have this issue where, you know, internet people are coming up, internet gurus are coming up and taking over what is the scientific truth or, or what is the truth is. And uh, yeah, it's a battle over who you trust at the end of the day, really. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I want to rewind to and just kind of bring up the fact that you're, you, you subscribe to a research review, right? Now, a research review is something that is meticulously looked at, and you're looking at a, like dozens of journals, and they're they're extrapolating really useful information from those from those journals. And I want to contrast that with science journalism, right? Um, the fact is, most people aren't scientifically literate. Most people don't know how to sit and look at a scientific paper, you know, full stop. Like they just don't know how to do it. And what happens is you get uh science journalism which is people who try to dumb down the studies without the context of the studies and just say the results it's the same thing as like oh you know these scientists found out that red wine and dark chocolate is good for your heart like 
no fucking isn't. Like it's it's not. Like you're 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 taking these isolated variables and these these no context things and you're trying to apply them to a mainstream sort of uh you know, it, it like the Joel Seedman sort of idea. I was like, oh, you know, like the science shows that you shouldn't go past 90 degrees and then you'll stay injury free and get fucking jacked. You know, like he's taking it's like we'd ne I've never looked at those studies, but I, I'm sure if we did, the context of those studies would be not favorable to any proof of like this ultimate way of training for for good biomechanics, right? Like it's it's context of these studies that is important and science journalism will leave out context and they can get away with it because no one is fucking scientifically literate <laughs> well i mean here, here's the thing there's the studies and then there's common sense right um so the 90 degree training if you do it a lot if, if that's all you do then you'll be really good and really strong in 90 degree motion okay you won't get hurt in the gym doing them as much because you're in that you know neutral zone but it's not going to teach your body anything. You don't automatically, your body doesn't know how to move after you do a 90 degree lift. There's something called specific adaptations to impose demands. If you want to get better at movement, if you want to be more efficient, if that's the end you want to go to, then you have to do the actual motions. You have to learn how the body uh, dances together, the, the parts dance together. That's not taught within the scientific paradigm of 90 degree lifts or scientific 90 degree lifts but science can go against itself there because again the principle of specific adaptations to impose demands say that your 90 degree lifts are only going to give you strength within that uh 90 degree parallel okay he I thinks think it's within six degrees apply everywhere okay he thinks that strength can apply everywhere hmm. one the variable you're probably not going to hurt the nfl player um while you're uh coaching them or whatever and that right there is huge off your back right because there is a lot yeah. of people hurting nfl players in the dressing or, or sorry in the weight room okay so that is a problem that he's solving there using science however is he getting his name from nfl players already going to him not his name but like 90 degree training is awesome because nfl players do it but nfl players come to me because i'm a phd already and they're fed to me so because other NFL players are seen on my social media, then I'll get another set of them afterwards. And then the cycle continues. And then Joel Seidman's a star, right? So like yeah. you can, and again, 90 degree training will make you strong in 90 degree motions. Does that transfer over to actual movement? I don't know. I doubt it highly. <laughs> I mean, and again, that, that whole idea of specific, adaptations to impose demands the said principle right that that's 101 stuff you know even within the current paradigm we can both agree on that i think that you know i think the scientific literature don't quote me on this because i might be wrong but i remember reading somewhere that it's within six degrees of the trained range you also get uh you know it, it, conversely it's like you get um the atg system for example focuses a lot of, on end range training and one recent study on hypertrophy showed that just training the end range basically maximized hypertrophy gains like even in short short range full range and just long range training just training in the long range maximized hypertrophy for the muscle and i was like ah that's that's kind of interesting right biggest tissue adaptations happen at the end range even if you only train the end range you're training the whole muscle that's that's interesting but again like is it fully true like 
there's there's all kinds of contradictory information and again the context is missing from that well as a as a skeptical scientist but, myself like hmm. if I want to be skeptical when I'm looking at things, right? So when I hear that, I'm like, that's that's a really cool uh, thing you just said, long range. So I'm going to go to the study. If it's actually interesting to me, I'll go to the study and I'll go straight to the variables and methods. It's like, how did they actually design this study and can it actually test that variable or did they kind of work it around to make it look like that's the case? And then the conclusion, oh, trust me, it's like this. But when I look at the methods that they use yep. to devise the study, it doesn't match. Okay, that happens quite a bit. So on the highest end of it, I want to look at the study myself and see if it was designed to actually get what you uh, concluded from it. Yeah. And I mean, that study, I think, too, was like they were doing, uh, like, I don't know, I think it was like probably standard six weeks of training on a leg extension machine, right? Testing the different ranges on a leg extension machine. Like, again, what do you think I would say to that? <laughs> well, again, you're looking at, you're looking at a fixed plane of motion and there's no actual, it's not happening in movement, right? Like it's a tissue adaptation happening in a fixed plane. You're sitting on a machine. When are you actually like in, in real life, when do you actually move your body that way? Well, again, it's a hypertrophy specific study, man. Like it's for bodybuilders who are trying to build muscle, man. It's hypertrophy science. Did the conclusion? Science. Did the conclusion say that though? The conclusion is. Let me see. What? The conclusion is you're going to get more hypertrophy, or you know what the average person hears eventually when it gets out to media is that you'll get jacked if you just do um, end range training. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like. Yeah. Yeah, but should you be doing it in the first place? Is it the best value use of your time? Uh, could you conduct a study that could go against that? Uh, there's a million different variables that they didn't test, even from what you're telling me, right? Mm. So, I think yeah. it was a Schoenfeld. Show, uh, Brad Schoenfeld? Yeah, what about? I'm gonna try and find it. Sure. And while you're while you're trying to find that. Um, Right now, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies are what the highest level are, okay? So, like, if you can devise a study like that, it's viewed as the highest order of evidence. However, who said that that's the case? Who said that it's over-observation? In something like movement, I can see that in a field or a scientific field where you don't actually have a, a variable that you can see in front of you over and over and over and over and over again. Movement is very special in itself that you can actually stop it in a photograph or a video and watch it again and again and again. And you can have a hundred scientists if you want in the same room and you can get a consensus right there. With modern technology, you should be able to do that. But instead they go through the um, peer review. That right there would be peer review. You know what I mean? Better than yeah. the process right now where it's like, no, 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 submit it to this paper that has, you know, possible gatekeepers, possibly not, possibly a, a research journal with a lot of integrity. There's tons of them out there too, right? But is double-blind, placebo-controlled actually the best way to do things with movement? I actually don't agree. I think slow-motion observation is uh, a better form of evidence and actually completely ignored, arrogantly, I would uh, Add, completely ignored in this like in this paradigm of uh, science within movement. It's like how could you ignore scientific evidence 
or evidence given to you that you can observe over and over and over again. It just, mm. it makes no sense to me. Well, again, that, that, that sort of comes down to the, the idea of like what, what makes up quality evidence, right? That's, that's the one, one argument that I would assume a scientifically minded person would make would be like, well, that's an observation. And you're, you're only making an observation. You're only getting to like part two of the scientific method, right? You're, you're, you're forming a question or an observation. You're making a hypothesis. Yeah. You're no, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not making predictions or, or forming studies or you're not testing it. Right. So it's like, I think that the element missing there is the testing for most people where it's like you get to the observation level, but this is where the, this is where you kind of have to start thinking for yourself and testing for yourself. This is why Nadia Aguilar considers himself scientist because he will, he will make observations like this and then he will test them usually. Right. Now, now he also has his own paradigm of thinking and he also will not stray too far from his own paradigm of thinking because he's tested certain variables and he thinks he, he's figured things out in a certain way, right? Like he, he is, he has become less scientific maybe in his approach now because he has a method, you know, he calls functional patterns his intellectual property and, uh, you know, and, and has like non-disclosure agreements for his methods and stuff and like, you know, when you're that invested in a certain way, you're going to be more closed off to information again. But I digress. This 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 observation has to be a good observation, and it has to be good enough to at least test and observe. Now, if you're a person who is looking for the truth, right, you can't make observations and assume it's the truth. You have to test the variables yourself. Like you and I have been testing the go-to principles for a while. And, you know, there are things that I've noticed about it that are like, wow, this is incredible. There are things that I've noticed about it that don't jive with me super, super well. Um, you know, I had to tweak quite a few things because I was making observations about how they, like false observations about how they did things. And I ended up getting like a little bit of knee pain because I was doing it wrong. And then when I got corrected, I was like, okay, my knee pain's gone now. Um, there, there are things that you have to test and you have to do and you have to figure out for yourself. And you have to be pretty rigorous with it. You can't just assume that, uh, you know, that that because you're you're making an observation that you can get away with not testing it you yeah. have to you have to find you know evidence can't just be an observation because we can observe things incorrectly which is why you know the peer review exists which is why the replicable of uh, uh things kind of exist right like you could say goda is it in it like goda as a as a movement system and as a as like a We'll just call it a movement system is itself a test of an observation because you have go to coaches, you have go to coaches who are becoming certified and their clients are getting results. Uh, and those, th these results are the test in itself. You know, functional patterns is a test of observations. These are all things that like, you know, even though there's no science quote behind them in an academic sense, there's no uh, published papers on them. They're still being rigorously tested and re uh, replicated. The results are being replicated by other people. And they're also being criticized by each other, right? Like they're, you know, within a GOTA or a functional patterns community or a WEC method communities, people are still making other observations and criticisms of the systems and they're still trying to, you know, evolve within it, right? Um, but what happens is you end up having these paradigms of thought that you get stuck in, right? Like, a, like functional patterns will not look at GOTA and vice versa, you know, and, and WEC method and won't look at, you know, the, the traditional model of like any core bracing or whatever, you know, like no one's going to look at each other because they're all existing within their own paradigms. Paradigms in themselves are very useful because they create models of understanding, but they are in themselves functionally limited. 
So let me ask you a question. How would you better design a, like a study for movement without slow motion? Because don't forget, anybody can look at the slow motion. It's yeah. open source, right? Like as long as you post it publicly, it's open source for criticism once you get it there. So what is like, let's say I have a movement I'm studying and I want to get better and more efficient at that movement. What would be the most intelligent way to design a study to get a better movement? To get a, a superior movement, objectively superior, more efficient movement. How would I do a study without observation there? How would I get better without observation? Because the average well, you, study, the average, hold on, the average scientific study would say, devise a group, devise a control group, and then test them against each other. And uh, usually the group being tested are a bunch of regular people, not super athletes, okay? And let's test the two groups and see which ones or how they walk. Uh, I don't know, right? So that's usually how it's done is two groups tested with um, statistically relevant questions. Or you can just open source in movement specifically. The observations are now open sourced for everyone to repeat scientifically, repeat, observably, repeat. Mm -hmm. And you can do it thousands of times over with the best movers, not just regular Joe and the public who are already kind of devolved their motions, okay? Uh, as Naudi would say. <laughs> okay, so like I just think actually in science, the best scientific method in movement is observation. I, I think I think that's where it starts too. And But then again, there are, there are different variables that you would need to test within that as well, right? Like you would need to observe other things like, in the examples, like how would I design a study? Okay, well, I'll take everyone who does GOTA, right? Yeah. And they have to they have to be doing it in a certain way, right? Like you can't just be like self-reported. Like this is the thing, I've become very skeptical of large population studies from nutrition because they're all usually self-reported. People don't remember what they ate. It's garbage data and people are extrapolating these things and saying there's truth based on like absence of data, right? So you gotta, you gotta have people who are, who are doing GOTA training, uh you know five times a week and they're patterning and they're walking and they're they go under you know they they, they don't just have self-reports they're part of these coaching groups and, and and you look at them and then you measure them against a control group who are not doing go to they're doing regular weightlifting or pilates or all these other things just the other group you know sample size ideally of a couple thousand each you know this yeah. is this is like i'm designing a study right i have infinite yeah. resources to design a study um you know and, and then how would you observe them how would I, how would I what? Observe them. How would you observe them? So this is, this is, these, these are the observations that I would make. Um, yeah. These are, these are the sort of the, the, the markers. How many joint replacements? What are their self-described reports of uh, pain in their body in different places? What are the common, uh, you know, dysfunctions that they have, right? Like you, you would still have to observe them for movement. In a, in a sense, but what are, but like, basically I would say, okay, well, what are the, what are the things that are associated with bad movement? There are joint replacements, there are surgeries, there are body pains, there are, uh, you know, gastric dysfunctions. There's all kinds of different things. So I would mark them for, I would, I would observe their health, health markers. And basically I would look at the absence of negative effects from poor movement and degeneration, right? You can, you can look at, uh, you can even test their insulin sensitivity because of, the, how, of how well they're activating muscles in a different way, right? Like there's, there's all kinds of things that you could test for.
Well, I was speaking more of uh, movement specifically, right? Like you're, you're talking more of designing the optimal human and how to observe their movement. I'm talking more of like along the lines of which movement is objectively better. Like let's say pronation, uh, let's say an easy one, over pronation where your foot smashes against the ground, everyone says that's bad, versus a neutral, uh, you know, a neutral step, which Goda wouldn't say is optimal, but is better than your foot completely crashing down. Yeah. Now, if I have a thousand people, would I want to look at each one on in slow motion? I mean, you you could in theory, but like, but how, like, but what does, what does that, that slow motion, here's the thing, if you don't have another variable to kind of test, like, for example, could you somehow measure the tension that's in their Achilles tendon? Well, I'm yeah. not saying do nothing else, but I'm saying within movement, slow motion should be there every single time. Like, you can test, there's a million different uh, observations and things you can test. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is slow motion within movement be there every time if you right. want to make so, the movement more efficient but but that's that's okay so but make i guess what i'm saying is like i'm testing to see whether or not it is more efficient you can still look and observe these things like goda does for example they've watched thousands of hours of slow motion to extrapolate these these principles that they've done but like how do you test that they made they made these observations i am i'm i'm playing devil's advocate like i think what they found is statistically like i'm i'm also the common sense camp if you see thousands of people performing the same behaviors and having the same outcomes that's significant for me personally the issue is like you still test it in other variables you look at other variables to say just so that you can say that like you know there might be something that you're missing in the slow motion video that is causing that outcome it's unlikely right because it's like you're like okay well you could argue that the oh well the the football player that's goda is he's, he has stronger tissues it's okay well what about the babies and the and the indigenous tribes that don't do any strength training and they don't have the the tissue strengthening activities and blah 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 right like you can you can make these other arguments right what i'm saying is they're like observation is where it starts then you test the observation and the hypothesis that you make on it. So you're observing these thousands of hours of video. You're like, okay, I think that because they're going inside ankle bone high and they're creating this rotary pattern, that that is what prevents their injury. That's the most structurally stable way for the body to move. Now, how do I test that? Because I'm observing this and I'm seeing that. That's my hypothesis. How do I go out and test that? Now, for me, that's that's why I said I would set up that, that test in that way. I would look at the consequences of bad uh, behavior patterns, which we know are joint replacements, we know are tissue degradation, we would test for different levels of, of tissue integrity and, and structural integrity, self-reports of pain. Those are all very good measures of if you have high levels of pain and you're getting joint replacements, you ain't moving very efficiently, right? So I would look for the how, how fucked up are people and are people getting fucked up less doing this, right? That's how I would test that, right? So the observation is, and you would still need to observe it, right? Like in order for the data to be accurate, you would still need to go into the GOTA group and make sure that they're behaving in that certain way. Just like in your control group, you would need to make sure that they're overpronating or something, right? You would want to make sure that you, that, that both of them and you would watch them in slow-mo. It's hard to watch thousands of people in slow-mo, but fuck, I mean, GOTA does it. Um, yeah, let's, let's go through, um, another video and i'm going to play it and let's talk about it because all these are pertinent all the videos i have queued up are pertinent to what we're talking about so then we can bounce off that yeah okay, um 
Doesn't play that. Here we go. This is uh, just so some context. This is Sean Thistle. He is the research review service guy. He's in a conversation with Andreo Spina of FRC, and they're talking about science and you know the limitations and what they see. And Sean Thistle, the, the uh, guy who reads you know thousands and thousands of papers. These guys are the top guys in you know science and uh, what where the literature within the scientific community is at right now. Okay, so um, let's take a look at what they have to say. Research consumption, like they want to hear about it as long as it makes them feel happy inside. And I'm not sure that's what research is for. Research is to inform thought and it's to inform action, but it can't be the only thing you lean on. And I've always, you know, people might misunderstand me as someone who just. So right off the get-go there, he's talking about cherry picking studies, right? And obviously that's a huge thing. Uh, you go for, you look for what you already want to confirm. You're confirming your bias. Okay. Williams, 100% on evidence, but I, I think when I was younger and when I started this company, I leaned a little bit that way. I think part of maturing as a clinician and as a person, and then as you see how research is uh, evolving on numerous fronts, in combination with what we've sort of known and investigated for years, you have to take a broad view of things and realize that there's still a very variable human being in front of you, whether you're doing exercise with them or whether you're going to put your hands on them and do something or whether you're even going to talk to them. So I think research is part of the matrix that informs all clinical interaction. We just, you know, my task in my career is to make people at least acknowledge that the research part is there. And that's not easy sometimes. Like research, like you said, is overwhelming to some degree. Like, I can't keep up on everything. I look at probably, I think it's about 85 or 90 journals a month and just see what's there. And then I pull it and I have a folder of like thousand papers that I go through once a year and make sure I'm not missing anything important. Okay, so uh, that that in itself right there is pretty pretty wild, right? Like, he is the, the guy that's looking at the most papers and he can't keep up. So even if you're trying to keep up with the science, you're not going to see everything. So most people, I'm going to say right now, I observe cherry-picked data. You get the papers you want. Almost anything you want is going to be there. If you want a paper on 90-degree training to justify yourself, you can go do that. If you want a paper on long-range training, training your muscles in full range, you can go find that. If you want a positive paper on uh, stretching, you can get that. You can get a negative paper on stretching. So basically, I can pull up science for whatever I want anyway. Okay, so the quality of research really, really matters. And when you say quality of research, I think, you know, what I, what I kind of extrapolated from this episode was quality of research means how the study is designed, what variables are being tested for, and how you come to these conclusions. I think it's also kind of interesting to think of, like, not only how did you come to the conclusion, but how did you come to form the question anyway? What context are you asking yourself the question from? How did you come to form the hypothesis? And I realize that's hard to explain for a lot of people. Like it's such an amalgamation of, of different information that that is basically, it's the sum of your, these questions arise out of different paradigms, right? So the questions that inspire scientific studies arise from within existing paradigms about the nature of something within the paradigm, right? So when, when people are debating about you know, whether she should brace or hollow your cores and like suck your belly in or brace your transverse abdominis and puff out, that's within a certain paradigm. And those are different questions that arise within a very specific context of thought, right? I think that question to be asked too is like, like, is, are they asking from the right principle or the right paradigm? Or as we would sometimes say, are they asking or, or exploring the right map? 
are the variables, variables, the correct variables to be looking at? Are they even accounting for uh, variables of a new paradigm? And these are all higher level questions that um, I don't think that's happening right now. I don't think the variables of something like Agoda, something like WEC method or functional patterns, I believe, and this is my belief, that they've looked at more variables and are more able to bounce ideas and be creative and explore the body than the average scientist. You can see it. Most of the go-to practitioners are amazing movers. Most of the WEC method guys, amazing lifters, amazing movers. Um, I mean, you can argue within the, the context of that. Functional patterns, putting up day after day after day of videos showing people improving their motion, they're doing something right. They found some variables that aren't accounted for in the literature or are accounted for in the literature, but aren't being put together in the package that uh, is being brought forth by like a go to functional patterns, WEC method, FRC, uh, ATG, those type of systems, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of important too, right? Like these, these people are systematizing based on observations and not based on, uh, you know, like hyper specializing on variables as well. They also don't have to go through some of the academic gatekeepers that you mentioned, uh, and they're not sort of posturing for position in trying to get the status of being published in certain journals. The issue is journals also probably come with their own biases and will only, they'll have publications that are based on, you know, either having some sort of breakthrough within the context or the paradigm that exists within that journal's collective mindset, right? So when you're when you're thinking about truth and you're and you're finding, like, don't discard the scientific method, but also understand the limitations of the academic structure, the institution of academia, and the institution of of science as a whole. Uh, it, it's you're gonna you're gonna that's why like even uh, you know looking up studies from other countries is useful because other countries will sometimes operate on different paradigms so they'll have more open-minded sort of ideas. I remember when I went from uh, you know when I was in the strength lifting the, the lifting in the strength coaching world, I was very big on reading Russian studies and Russian textbooks because they had they they had a whole other way of thinking about things and it was it's super informative and I I learned way more from Russians than I did about you know from Canadians or or Americans, right? Like reading, reading other biases and other paradigms, and and opening your mind to questioning even the principles by which some of the foundations of the things that you're just accepting as quote scientific truth, where those are coming from. Like, I think uh, you know the, one of the most important things you talked about today is to question first principles, and to to ask you know like why and where did these ideas come from and what are the first principles that people are operating on when they're trying to test for these these things um i think you know some of the, we've talked a lot about what some of the first the first principles that we think are for the are for the body you know the spinal engine theory the fact that the spine is one of the drivers of locomotion that walking standing running throwing are the uh, prime functions of the human body and those are the first priorities biomechanically of the human body and then from there once you once you kind of think of that, okay, spinal engine and these four biomechanical functions, everything else you kind of look through that lens, right? And that's our paradigm that we're looking at, and we kind of form that from you know like that like for me, you know, I didn't go through as much rigorous study as you did, and I don't have as much of a you know sort of a, a kinesiology or biomechanics or, or or academic background at all. 
but I've been obsessed with movement and training since I, you know, became a personal trainer almost 11 years ago. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the lenses that I started looking at through the last, you know, few years, starting with like the paleo diet is like, well, what did we evolve to do or what, what were we designed to do? Like what, you know, if we look at our ancestors and we look at what our bodies were optimized for in a natural context, if we think of ourselves as an animal, like obviously human beings have incredible cognitive capacities and we do things that are unlike any other animal on earth, but we still have like, you know, the same biological functions as animals. We still eat and shit and move, right? So like, what was the human animal designed to do? Because our bodies are the closest things to our animal nature that we still have, right? There's, there's, there's a way that it's kind of meant to move. And if we think about like that in particular, that's kind of where you start to, to, to define some of the first principle ideas to start testing things. Well, I think Gota actually, like if you look at it within the scientific design of how they're designing their, let's say their science, right? They took a step back and they said, let's forget, or maybe they didn't say this, but like, let's forget about everything we know so far. And let's observe people who are untouched by Western culture, uh, babies, how you would, you know, do it naturally, elderly people who are doing things that other elderly people can't, physical things. And um, let's see if there's commonalities by observing them over and over and over again. And we can use this awesome technology of slow motion that just came to be in, in a consumer basis. And that was never there accounted for in the scientific process and let's see if we can uh observably see patterns over thousands and hundreds of thousands of repetitions of viewing this okay yeah. i think that's an amazing study design okay well and it's, it's almost it's like a reverse process. it's a reverse right because like the study that i said i was going to design was you're going to take these two control groups and you were going to you were going to test for these these outcomes based on the movement patterns for them they're looking at the outcomes and then they're observing the patterns literally the reverse of it like it's almost like a reverse study. That's almost their paradigm they're coming from though. From there, you can test as many variables as you want in science, okay? So like scientifically, I can use slow motion to say, what is the best way for my foot to take off in a run? What is the most efficient way for my bones to spin? Um, the, the thing is, it, slow motion just makes so much sense to look at because you can actually see it happen from multiple angles, right? And um, that would be more of like how you would design a specific study, but coming from the paradigm of looking at the human within the natural context, the most natural context a human can come from, seeing patterns repeated and saying that uh, perhaps my hypothesis is humans have a natural way to move. And guys, we found this. So do you want to test it? They're like, what do you mean? You got to come through the academic world. It, be validated by this. And go to saying, yeah, no, thanks. We'll do it our own way. If you want to come, your institutions come to us and validate what you think, that's fine. But we're going to do our own science over here. And that raises the question, who owns science, right? Mm -hmm. Who owns it? Uh, is it, uh, the in, does the institution of academia own science? I think the word science right now is owned by, and the consensus of those institutions is what, people have in their head as science, but this is changing with open source, okay? Um, it's more a direct cons to consumer model where the consumer has to make the educated choice. Mm. So the consumer needs to be ultra savvy these days, I mean, to, to conclude.
and that that the issue right is like where like like as a consumer how do you make yourself more savvy well you know don't blindly say i trust the science because the science can usually be an amalgamation of cherry pick studies don't trust one source or figure and this is the issue like most people are just too lazy to do this i'm gonna just call a spade a spade most people are just too lazy to look at more than one source of information and to fucking think for themselves like i'm, I'm like a little aggressive about this point but I really think that most people are too lazy to think for themselves and to look at multiple points of information and to test things. Like, look at who's testing things. Don't look at the most jacked guy and just assume that what he says is right. Don't look at the most nerdy looking dude who has the most scientific papers because he could just cherry pick his way through anything that he wants to confirm whatever bias that he has about movement or his own ideas. Look at the people who are getting consistent results and replicating different things and and you know, and test for yourself. What do you get results doing? That's how you become savvy is you test things. Like I, I think I've done every diet under the sun and then some, and I've done, you know, like every conventional popular strength training from the, you know, the Shiko powerlifting to five by five to five, three, one CrossFit and fucking Edo Portal method. Like I've tested everything, everything. Thing. And I'm continuing to test everything. Like, like I never stop testing, you know. And, I, and and like I've learned to become a better tester of my own body. You got to care enough. Like, care more is is basically the the sort of my my sound off today is like you. It is up to the consumer to be a little more savvy. It is up to you to think for yourself and not just blindly trust science without asking yourself what paradigm they're coming from. It's up to you to investigate first and come up with your own not conclusions necessarily because as soon as again as soon as you make a conclusion you're close to new information then you're operating in your own sort of mental prison paradigm but you have to come up to your own consistencies and ideas that you will continue to test continue to question and continue to come up with so i think that's you know that's my sound off i really think that uh you know this episode we, we, we went pretty deep in terms of, you know, some of the ways that we think about science. And, and again, like I still read scientific, like I will read research reviews and I will read specific papers, but I will also, like you said, look at the study design. I'll look at who did it. I'll look at who funded it, especially in nutrition, like nutrition in, in particular. Like I have probably read, I'm going to say close to, fuck, I don't know, 8,000 papers in on nutrition, just trying to figure out how, how to eat. <laughs> You know, like at least, at least 8,000, half of them, I needed to like, to slow down and like figure out even just how to read them and how to interpret the data. And, you know, this is what, basically my conclusion from reading, like you would think that I would have a conclusion on how to eat after reading 8,000 scientific studies on, on nutrition. My conclusion is that you can't just trust research papers as your only source of information. You need some common sense. You need to test it yourself. You need to actually pay attention to the results that you're getting, the results that are happening in other people. And you need to think deeper than just studies because you can find studies for fucking anything. Yeah. And, and uh, to conclude, I, I really think what I was saying with the consumer being savvy, most people don't even know that they can do their own science, right? Like I look at myself as a scientist now because I'm testing variables. Um, I'm not claiming that, my conclusions are scientific within the academic because they're not peer reviewed. I don't, it, it doesn't really bother me that much. Okay. But um, 
I think that we could definitely do a part two to this because there's so much to it. There's the consumer angle, there's the science angle, there's the, you know, where it is in, in uh, functional fitness right now. Uh, there's so much to this and we hardly even touched, you know, half the clips that I already had. So this is a good place to drop off there and, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to do part two on this one. Yeah, we will definitely do a part two guys. This is episode 14 of the Art of Move podcast. Uh, if you're listening tomorrow on November 23rd, we're talking to Lucas Aaron, who is range of strength. He's, uh, in my opinion, one of the foremost experts in flexibility strength training. Um, and if you don't know what flexibility strength training, you will tomorrow. We're, we're going to be doing that at uh, 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's 5 p.m. Atlantic Standard Time. And do your own time conversions. I'm so sick of <laughs> talking about time zones because every person that I talk to in the world seems to be in a different time zone. But either way, Lucas Aaron, range of strength, you will learn how to become flexible. We're going to talk about the role of flexibility in biomechanics, if there is, even is one. Um, and we're going to see where his principles kind of fit in with the rest of the frameworks that we've talked about so far in the Art of Move podcast. For everyone listening, thank you so much for taking the time to hear us out and to explore these ideas with us. This is super, super fun and mentally expansive for me. Uh, I won't speak for Will, but I have a feeling it is too. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Episode 14, we'll catch you tomorrow for Range of Strength. Let movement be your medicine.